In this episode, I am joined by Jan Krumzik of Wild Cornell Medicine in New York. His group develops bioinformatic tools for metabolomic and multiomic analysis that are used in all fields of biomedical research, from Alzheimer's disease to diabetes and cancer. Together, we discuss sex differences in metabolomics that are inherent intrinsic sources of variation in the population. And we see how some AI-based methods can bring us closer to understanding the biological stories concealed in our metabolomic datasets. The Metabolomist is the podcast where scientists connect to explore the unspoken issues in metabolomics research. I am your host, Alice Limonciel, and together we will examine how metabolomic data interpretation is done. I discuss with other scientists how they do this work, how they plan, execute, but also communicate metabolomics. Today's episode of the podcast, I am joined by Jan Krumzik. Hello, Jan. Welcome. Thank you. So I'll start by introducing you because some members of the audience might not know you, but I'm sure some of them are familiar with your work. You studied bioinformatics at the Technical University of Munich in Germany, mm-hmm. and then you did a PhD at the Helmholtz Center in Munich as well. Mm-hmm. You stayed at Helmholtz for a few more years, and there you were a team leader and junior group leader in systems medicine of diabetes. And in 2018, you joined the Wild Coronal Medicine in New York, where you're now an assistant professor. Your group focuses their work on the development of new bioinformatic tools to analyze metabolomics and multiomics, so to integrate datasets together as well. Would you like to tell us maybe a bit more about the work of your group at Cornell? Yeah, so when I came here, I think it was still that metabolomics wasn't used as much or people were using it as a tool for metabolic research, but they didn't have necessarily the methods. And together with a colleague from Qatar, Carsten Zulu, we convinced the department here that they need a computational mm-hmm. dry lab metabolomics person. That's sort of the reason why I came here. And as you said, we are developing methods all the way from pre-processing, data quality control, all the way down to pathways and networks and all that stuff. The only thing we don't do is working on peaks and spectra directly from the mass spec. So usually we rely on whoever's working on the platform for that and, and take it up right after that. Mm-hmm. And which platforms do you use to develop those, uh, those tools? In the very beginning, a lot of our work was based on MATLAB. That was not even a specific choice. It was because my back then PI came came from the signal processing physics field and he just was a MATLAB person. So we were all doing MATLAB. If I could go back in time, I don't know if I would do it the same way simply because MATLAB is uh, very expensive and the toolboxes are not necessarily made for metabolomics analysis. So these days I would say we do 95% R and maybe 4% Python and the rest, sometimes whatever we need in a specific scenario. But the majority of the work is R-based because, yeah, it's free. Yeah. It's supported by the community a lot. You worked on diabetes. You also work on cancer and maybe also other diseases. How do you choose which disease you work on? Is it based on the collaborations you have? Or is it also your own driver, driving force for certain diseases? 
a little bit of both, but I would say a lot of times it is driven by the opportunity of of collaboration. We have to admit mm-hmm. that. I always try to say we worked in diabetes and then cancer and also Alzheimer's disease. So what else is almost all of the diseases sounds a bit much, but mm-hmm. they, they do come together at the mm-hmm. level of metabolism where mm-hmm. metabolomic methods can be used for 80% of the same things, right? Um, yeah. But then the, the biomedical application is driven by who's there to work with you. Here uh, at Weill in New York, we have a lot of oncologists and oncology researchers and clinicians and that matters. If, mm-hmm. if you don't have people that are specialized in the field around you, if you can convince them to obtain patient samples for you and then work mm-hmm. on a cancer project, for example. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's move to the, the first topic I would like to discuss with you. It's based on one of your papers from 2015. The paper is entitled Gender-Specific Pathway Differences in the Human Serum Metabolome. And I wanted to discuss this paper with you for two reasons. One is the method. So you use a combination of pathway enrichment and Gaussian graphical models or GGMs. And the second reason is the very topic of the paper, which is sex differences in biology and specifically in metabolomics. In this paper, you use two methods that I would call like one biology driven and one more data driven. This is how I would uh, categorize them. So From what I I gathered from the methods, there's a pathway enrichment method, which is a a kind of homebrewed method from what I understood. So did you design your own pathways and which metabolites belong to them and then do the calculations? First of all, I like the biology-driven and Mm data-driven. We always call it knowledge-driven and data-driven, but Mm -hmm. it's the same concept of what you were referring to. So for the pathway methods, the, the assignments of pathways of the metabolites were actually from the metabolome platform as mm-hmm. they deliver them to us, which we know from them and talking to them is a very laborsome process. So they have teams in the background making those choices that you later on work with. And there's a lot of questions as we know that. So you could do it differently. Why, why are certain glycolysis metabolites in the carbohydrate pathway and not in mm-hmm. the energy pathway and so on? So it's, those choices seem sometimes arbitrary and you also get criticism from reviewers for that. Mm-hmm. But at least it's something we have that's always our counter argument. At least we can work with it and then we can still ask questions later. Yeah, so. and I think as long as also as you're open about what's in each list, then people can also make their own mind about it. Because, I mean, if you look at the map of the metabolome, you see that everything is connected to everything. So also, where do you draw the line and where does one pathway stop and the next one begin? Sometimes it's not so clear. Exactly. We have also worked with some versions, partially from them, partially from other databases where you don't have that constraint of you have to annotate each metabolite with a single pathway, but you can do many. Mm-hmm. And life doesn't always get better with that. So <laughs> it's, it's really complicated if you have all these assignments that you work on. So the method that you were referring to sort of, let's say now we have these annotations and we hope we can believe what metabolite comes from which pathway. Mm -hmm. What we found is that the classical pathway enrichment analysis, as we know it from genes, Mm -hmm. transcripts and so on, it doesn't work that well in metabolomics, in my opinion. It's being used and it's this classical idea of enrichment. Mm -hmm. So is there a pathway that has more hits in it? We've also had a PhD student work on that topic. It doesn't work that well if... Your background is small. So we only measure a couple hundred metabolites, maybe a thousand. And it's not the entire genome Mm -hmm. as in the transcriptomic case. And it creates some statistical artifacts that would be a bit too much to talk about here, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter because it makes a difference. So we come up with all these problems that 
these enrichment methods had in how we what we observed when we did it in this case in the male versus female analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, so we came up with this new way, which was to aggregate them to create a pathway score that mm-hmm. in itself is not new, just the way we did it there is new. So the idea is instead of asking does, let's say, TCA cycle have an increased number of hits, we ask, is the average concentration of the TCA cycle higher? Slightly different question, but it matters. No. And that gave us these results that are displayed in the paper. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you had your other approach, that is uh, those GGMs. Could you explain for a broad audience what GGMs are and then what that brings to compare to traditional uh, pathway analysis or so other types of data-driven analysis? Why is that especially interesting in metabolomics? Yeah, absolutely. GGMs are first and foremost a statistical tool that doesn't know anything about biology or biochemistry, but works with data. So what you can put into a GGM can be could be anything. Now, the idea behind GGMs is correlation-based analysis. It's also been referred to as guilt by association. We do that all the time. So if two things correlate, if they go up and down at the same time, across samples, mm-hmm. they must have something to do with each other. That's the idea of any co-expression correlation-based analysis. Yeah. The, the thing that GGMs add to that is that they get rid of confounding effects. They try to tease out using statistics, what are the direct correlations and not what is the, the correlation partner of another correlation partner of another correlation partner mm-hmm. distant in the pathway mm-hmm. using regression-based methods, let's say. So that method is not new. That We didn't mm-hmm. invent that. Yeah. Uh, that has been out there for a long time. There's books about it and so on. What was new was that we applied it to metabolomics data. That's easy. It's a click of a button. But what our research of the 10 years after the first paper and including the first paper was, is to prove that these things that come out, those networks, those correlation-based networks that come out are not just pretty to look at, but that they actually reflect pathways, that Mm -hmm. these single statistical, again, no knowledge about biology in the statistical model, these statistical edges that method finds are actual real single enzymatic reaction pathway steps. Mm. And across platforms, across tissues, across species, Mm -hmm. uh, we could show that. And that was sort of the big contribution of GGMs. Yeah. And you asked about what is the advantage over regular pathway methods. So the interesting thing is that for a GGM, you only need the data. For example, one of the biggest problems in metabolomics, as we all know, are the unidentified peaks. So you have a peak that you see consistently, you don't know what it is, you call it something X or different naming versions, and you can't do anything with it, right? So you you can't do pathway analysis or anything. And for example, the GGM will put that just in there. It's just it's just in the network and you can use it. Still, you don't know what it is, but at least you see it in context. Mm-hmm. And you can ask questions later what it might do. Mm-hmm. And so one of my questions would have been, like, how is it to interpret the results if there's a biological reason that could explain why they ended up in the same network? Yes. Or, so the, yeah. we also used, that was a paper we had later, if that's what you're referring to, uh, the information of the networks turns out to be so precise that you can actually predict what they are in context of them. Of okay. The mm-hmm. So with some inaccuracies, it's mm-hmm. more like reducing the number of candidates and telling you exactly what it is, but it's precise enough to show you what those metabolites are. Mm-hmm. And we actually found that particularly interesting, not just from a 
metabolomics-centric view. We want to identify metabolites that no one knows about, but also because this is in blood, right? It's not in a cell or in the liver or in the biopsy mm -hmm. sample. It's in blood and still the pathway footprints that we can find in it with statistics are still there so that we can recover all these pathways. Mm -hmm. And for, from your explanation of how the work happens under the hood, kind of, I was wondering, so you, you were mentioning that you take into account confounding effects. Does that mean that if you don't specify that the two sexes are two different groups, this would be kind of blended into the mix? Huh? That's a good question. So what we found over time, and that is more of a summary of published work and some unpublished work and work by other authors, is that the, these networks that we reconstruct from the data are pretty stable across conditions in humans, for example. Mm -hmm. So now you might say, can we make a network for males and for females, two of them, and compare, right? Or mm -hmm. could we make a diabetes and a non-diabetes network or a cancer network? And at least from what we found so far, it turns out that the networks themselves are remarkably stable, which at first was disappointing because we wanted to find the differential networks. But mm -hmm. it's also actually interesting because that means I don't have to really worry about it. I can use the same network as we used in the paper mm -hmm. for men and women alike. We just put it all together. Mm -hmm. And these confounding factors are more relating to other metabolites because metabolites tend to all go up and down at the same time with each other. That creates a lot of correlation that's not actually real, uh, or it's real, but it's not direct. Whereas across different genders or age groups or disease groups, it seems as though those structures are actually not confounded as much and are very stable, which is interesting because it kind of makes sense. Metabolism is hardwired, and then you just do make changes on it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so as any tool, I expect GGMs have limitations. So what would you say are the, the primary limitations to the application of GGMs to metabolomics? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say there are two big limitations. The first one is sample size. And we get that question a lot. You cannot do this in 20 samples. Mm -hmm. How many exactly do you need is a very difficult question because it also depends on how many metabolites do you have? How correlated are those? We've seen decent results with 50 to 100 samples. Below that, I don't know if I would use that method. Um, that's mm -hmm. also why it's often used more in the human study area rather than, for mm -hmm. example, in mouse yeah. study, because in mouse studies, you have very specific groups. The other limitation is the, is the G. The first G of GGM, Gaussian, so it requires normal distributions. That sounds mm -hmm. very statistical, but it matters especially when you have clearly non-continuous data, such as a binary variable or an ordinal variable. So for example, you cannot statistically put gender into the network as a node. That yeah. would be interesting to see gender float around with the metabolite mm -hmm. in the network and see where it attaches and what it does. Cannot do that. You need a completely different type of methods, MGM, mm -hmm. for mixed distribution graphical models. Much more complicated from a statistics computation point of view. Mm -hmm. So that is a limitation that is real and needs to be taken care of if you have mixed data. Okay. And for people who are interested in GGMs, then do they have to call you to try and collaborate with you or can they play around by themselves already? Like are there softwares or code available for people to try this on their own data already? 
Yeah, there's a couple of packages out there. So if you just Google partial correlation, there's one called PPCore, I believe. There is a famous paper called a paper and package called GeneNet mm-hmm. um, from a Corbinian Strimmer, German statistician, widely used. And those are two boxes that are really one click. Again, mm-hmm. you have to take care of all those things, the G, the Gaussian, normal distribution, that's on you to figure out that that's yep. all okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but then executing the calculation, getting the network from it is something that an undergraduate R coder could easily do, no problem. Okay. I also had a question, what pushed you to study this topic in the first place? Is it looking at data and the experience with data that made you say, okay, there is something here, someone should really describe these differences in the metabolome or where did it come from? So I wish that was the answer. What what (laughs) happened is, and I think that's an interesting anecdote, is I was one of the first PhD students with working with metabolomics data at Helmholtz. Back in the days, we had Biocritus data on the CORA study. And I was just trying stuff. I didn't really know what I was looking for. And then my boss said, why don't you try this thing? The What is it called? GGMs. Just, just try it out and see what happens. That is actually how it started. And I just pressed that button, looked at the Excel sheet, and then we inspected it for a while and was like, wait a minute, the first hits, those are all known pathway reaction. That seems like there's something here. So mm-hmm. I have to admit that the story that we tell of you can use the GGMs to reconstruct the pathways from the data mm-hmm. is not what the hypothesis was for which we <laughs> picked the method, but it was really the other way around. And that's how it happened. I remember that Excel sheet, actually. That was at the very <laughs> beginning of my, of my PhD. Uh-huh. And, and about the relevance of sex differences in metabolomics, do you implement that in your work now? The interesting about, uh, thing about sex difference is really that it's sort of the most simple variable in your data, you might say. It mm-hmm. is conceivably one of the easiest to assess. It's easy and, to keep track of most of the time, yeah. Right. So yeah. you always have it. Mm-hmm. With very little errors, usually mm-hmm. we can, for example, in those thousands of samples, we actually can genetically verify that they said they crossed the right box mm-hmm. on, the sh- uh, on the questionnaire. And we have maybe one error in 1800. So very easy to keep track of. Mm-hmm. But one of the biggest confounders of all really makes a difference. Men and women have very different metabolism. So the idea why we tackled that topic is that if you want to understand something complicated like cancer, not saying that gender isn't complicated, just the variable isn't complicated, Mm -hmm. right? But if you want to understand cancer outcomes over time or diabetes complications or stages a, of Alzheimer's. You have a very good example recently with Alzheimer's that in a paper from 2020. Yes. So yeah. and exactly. And then that is the, mm-hmm. how now there's dimorphisms in the associations that the paper you're referring to between metabolome mm-hmm. and Alzheimer's parameters. If you want to go to that level, mm-hmm. you have to first understand what the baseline difference is between the two genders or actually we should say sexes, are. And the other motivation is, of course, there's always a pharmaceutical idea behind it in that metabolites do probe the metabolization products of drugs as well. They can show you how well, how good you are at metabolizing something. Mm-hmm. And we know that a lot of medications these days still are for adults, youths, and children, sure. but not for men should take 800 milligrams and women mm-hmm. should take 500 milligrams, for example. Mm-hmm. And also for that, some baseline research on how 
general metabolism in the, well, admittedly elderly population in this case, but mostly healthy population, how it looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I liked this a lot in, in the paper we're talking about, the one where Matthias Arnold is, is first author, where there's a very elegant demonstration of the power of stratifying the data based on sex and also on APOE status for Alzheimer's patients, where you see there's one figure where you just compare Alzheimer's versus control, no discriminations made whatsoever, and there's no difference. I think it's proline, the, the metabolite that's looked at. So it's also something very basic and amino acid. You think, okay, it's nothing special. Yeah. And then you start stratifying and then you see, okay, male and female looks a bit different. And then when you combine with the, you do a twofold stratification with both the APOE phenotype and genotype and the sex, then you see that, oh, suddenly this actually becomes relevant for women who have this specific genotype. <laughs> and this is this was really a beautiful example. Of course, here is sex is the point where the difference is made in this case to address the metabolome of the female population with a specific genotype because you're grouping everyone together. In the same way, if you have a response that is so strong that it might come from a small part of the population, then you're going to generalize to everyone and then the majority is going to do something that's useless for them because the response is so strong in a small part of the population. So this, this was a beautiful example from that paper. I liked it a lot. Glad you liked it. So it's one of the major challenges, I think, also in the field and the true challenges of the entire field are these stratifications. So in this case, the factors by which we analyzed it were clear. It was gender was a good candidate to work on and APOE genotype was a major factor in Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. So the ones by which the data were stratified were sort of there. Yeah. But what if it's something else? What if it's something we've never thought of, of right? Course. Yeah. And some age group or um, mm -hmm. a very specific genotype group that we've never thought of. And that becomes a real statistical problem. We can't test all of those combinations of stratifications. And mm -hmm. I think, I personally believe, though many people are working on those methods, of course, that there's a lot of those hidden and cryptic associations out there that we just simply don't know about. And I don't know what to do about it. Maybe we need really big data sets, uh, mm -hmm. like a biobank or so. Is there something else you would like to, to point out about the sex differences paper? One interesting story in the paper that shows how complicated it can be to analyze this type of data, we mm -hmm. found differences between men and women of piperine which is a component of black pepper, the, mm -hmm. the spice, right? Yeah. Um, and it's higher in men. And as always with correlation and causation, it's easy to find, but not easy to explain. It could be, for example, that men eat more pepper. It's conceivable. But it could also be that the metabolization is different because there mm -hmm. are known differences in cytochrome C metabolization of Xenobiotics, that could mm -hmm. also be the case. And we don't know the final answer. So even in the paper, we said, oh, it could be this or it could mm -hmm. be that. And maybe no one cares about black pepper that much, but if this were a drug, this really matters, right? This really matters what, what the what mm -hmm. was the origin of those differences. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to tell from observational studies. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. still a major challenge for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as someone like I, I did my PhD and my academic work in the world of toxicology. So for me, like it would always be interesting because <laughs> it could be anything you're exposed to. Like from just from the chemical is what I was thinking about is also like it could be aftershave or something that is has this pepper scent and then you 
put that on more when you're a man than when you're a woman. And it's present possibly with other chemicals that you expose yourself to without really thinking about it. It's a really interesting field. I know you've worked a lot with the combination of metabolomics with GWAS as well, but you probably work with other types of omics. So which omics data sets do you work with other than metabolomics? Over time, we have worked with all of them, if that makes sense. <laughs> uh, I don't does. know if you can say all omics, but sort of the standard omics, we have worked with transcriptomics, proteomics, genomics, metabolomics, and then also epigenomics, for sure. Very important topic. And some that are a little more specialized, such as glycomics, that was, again, technology-driven through a collaboration partner, Gordon Lauk in Croatia, and some other more specialized aspects, but a big set of the central dogma of biology omics, I would say, all of them in some capacity. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about this now on the fly, but what is your view of epigenomics? How do you use it? Yeah, what I found most difficult working with epigenomics, and I'm assuming everyone who's done epigenomic research will have encountered this, is that while the marks on the DNA themselves are supposedly binary, you don't have the local inheritance structure like with SNPs. So mm -hmm. in a SNP, you can be somewhat certain, and this has been researched very well, of course, that my neighboring SNP is very highly correlated to me, which is LD, right? Mm -hmm. equilibrium. That doesn't necessarily count at all in epigenetics because it's a, it's a chemical modification. So the one mark could mean a lot and the mark three base pairs down could mean nothing. And that really made it complicated. Mm -hmm. We had one study in context of type one diabetes and HLA uh, methylation and the functional interpretation, summarization, aggregation of results across many marks on the DNA, I found much harder than epigenetics compared mm -hmm. to SNPs. Also not easy, but I thought that was way more complicated. I see. Then going back to metabolomics, you integrate it with other omics. Do you have like an opinion of who plays best with metabolomics or is it the same for you and you're happy to combine it with anything? The first thing we have to say or we have to sort of explore is that Integration is a word that we use, and it could mean a lot of things, right? And while, for example, if a collaboration partner approaches us with, let's say, a pure metabolomic study, two groups, we do have a one-size-fits-all approach for that. We have our mm -hmm. standard pipeline analysis and before the pre-processing and so on, and then we spit out the pathways, and then they can work with that or we work with that. In multiomics, I'm also being asked a lot, what is your standard approach? How do you integrate this metabolomics data with the transcriptomics data that I've measured. And it turns out there is no standard one-size-fits-all solution because there is no standard one-size-fits-all question. And so what, what are you asking? Are you asking, do the metabolites correlate with the transcripts? Okay, so we mm -hmm. now can design an analysis for that. But it could also be something way more complicated about so are these enzymes regulating that metabolic pathway or does glycosylation of a protein make a difference in metabolites, which by the way, we don't have any evidence. So I think it comes down to, you got to at least know somewhat the question. Let's stick mm -hmm. with the correlation part. I think that's the most intuitive part. It's the Is most common one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, do they go together? Mm -hmm. Yes or no. Right. And then maybe as pathways. So I think the one that we've seen that fits the best to metabolomics is actually proteomics. And the reason being maybe that it's exactly its next partner in the cascade. Mm -hmm. Transcriptomics yeah. is one step away. But also uh, the reason being that we often measure in blood and blood proteomics 
as blood metabolomics is something whole body related, but transcriptomics is something very different. Blood transcriptomics is immune cell, white blood cell, mostly transcriptomics. So you profile a very mm-hmm. specific compartment. And that's important. So when you say I do blood, let's say transcriptomics, metabolomics, you picture them as just two steps away, you know, transcriptomics, proteomics, metabolomics next to each other. But they're really not. They're actually uh, compartments away. It's more like yeah. liver influence metabolites, mm-hmm. immune cell transcript. But in tissues, the picture might be different, right? Yes. In tissue, the correlation is also generally higher. Mm-hmm. We have a so far unpublished cancer data set with our colleagues from Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, at Resnick there. And there we are exploring um, the metabolome transcriptome correlations in tissue, in cancer tissue. Mm-hmm. And we're still working on it, but also mm-hmm. there it's not as simple as you might think. It's not that always, you know, the enzyme goes with the substrate and the product of the metabolite as you would picture it if you drew it on a and this this often comes as a surprise to people who have never done this work before. <laughs> this is yes. interesting to see. Then I guess you have to do a lot of explaining when you work with people who are new to this field. Huh? Yes, and also to ourselves too, because sometimes we also <laughs> wonder how is that enzyme shows a lot of variation. So it, it looks like yeah. there is something, but it does not go with the substrate or product. And I think that just goes to show that dynamic regulation of biological systems is more complicated mm-hmm. than the arrows we draw on a piece of paper. Yeah. So in terms of tools now, are there any software tools or programs with the code available that you would recommend for people who are interested in integrating metabolomics with other omics? Yeah, I would always encourage people also to go out and check the most recent reviews because so we record this today and tomorrow there will be five new methods <laughs> sure. for, for this That's purpose. a good point. Yeah. So there's a couple of really interesting methods. For example, the MOFA method from the Olli Stegler lab that is going more in the direction of what I was referring to earlier, the cross-correlation analysis. Mm -hmm. And then there's several methods out there that do uh, attempt to do joint pathway enrichment analysis. The MetaboAnalyst platform, famous, is now integrating multi-omic steps as Mm -hmm. well. But again, it really depends. Unfortunately, it really depends on the actual question at hand to then go out there and pick the right method. Mm -hmm. And from what I remember, the most complicated thing for us was to find the common language between the different data sets. Is translation the first step and maybe the most time-consuming step in some sense? Absolutely. So if you get a new data, you can't just go ahead unless sometimes you know that someone has worked on the data so much that exact can just ignore pre-processing. You've, you've done it all. I'll just take the data and work with it. But even then... You find some results, something doesn't make sense. You need to understand maybe this protein is not really what it's supposed to say. You have to think about how the platform measures it. Mm-hmm. So you got to learn every platform, every method, all the problems of it. And we've had this discussion internally in the lab that more often than not, we hope we can use the data blindly. And almost every single time we have to walk back to the platform, talk to them, what's mm-hmm. going on here? What does this mean? Is this maybe a misannotation? I don't understand this. Why do I have all these zeros in my data set? So you cannot ignore it at almost any level, even though you you hope that someone has processed the data to the point for you that you can just use it. Mm-hmm. At least in my experience, that's never true. You always have to go back. Yeah, we often discuss metabolomics as in the context of the microbiome as the combination of the host and the, and the microbiome pool of metabolites. 
And as I was preparing for this discussion with you, I was wondering, since we're talking about multi-omics, do you know of any tools that combine several omics, considering there might be more than one species at work? Um, so I've never refer- seen this. <laughs> yeah, it's a very active field of research just from the two omic side, right? Mm-hmm. The metabolome and the microbiome. Mm-hmm. I think that is a whole new set of methods that will be required and maybe a good example for what we talked about earlier, that there's not always one size fits all approaches. Mm-hmm. For the microbiome now, let's say with the metabolome, that's one of the major topics, right? So mm-hmm. uh, let's say stool samples, and you have metabolites and microbes. Anyone who's ever worked with that, and even if you don't know much about it, just picture it, it's extremely difficult to really understand what's going on. You have a, yeah. a biomass that mm-hmm. processes metabolites, interacts with the, with the bloodstream through the gut, and somehow some product comes out and we're trying to interpret how it got there and mm-hmm. what, what made it is extremely complicated. And a good example for a different set of methods needed. If you want to do pathway analysis in microbes, for example, Ines Thiele, Ireland, she's working on that. It's an entire lab, an entire field, just working on, can I find a pathways that are active in certain microbes that in combination with other microbes then lead to the production of a certain metabolite in the Mm -hmm. gut that might or might not be beneficial for the human. And again, those methods are completely different than when you look at metabolome and proteome again, right? It's just yeah. something else. It's a different biological hypothesis. And this is why I think the answer to your question, the, the method that integrates a lot of these, I, I don't know that exists or, or can logically exist at this point in time. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how anything plays together yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's what I expected, but I just was curious to see if maybe you knew something that I hadn't heard about. Tell me if you know anything. Sure. <laughs> Stay in touch. <laughs> so about multiomic analysis, were there other points that you wanted to, to bring up? Yes, I think the manual integration of data, let's say into a figure or into a chart, is sometimes undervalued. Those pathway methods do not give you the final answer. They do not yeah. write the paper for you. I'm so, very happy to hear you say this because I yes. do believe that, but it's really nice to hear it from different sources too. <laughs> Absolutely. So, for example, in the latest Alzheimer's paper we were, we're working on, yes, we are going through the standard process of clean statistical analysis at large scale and then the pathway integration methods that we talked about. All of that needs to be done mm-hmm. as a first view of what's going on. But our final pathway about neurotransmitters that we were personally interested in is a figure that mm-hmm. my postdoc Richard worked on and no one has no computer method made that figure we picked it and of course you have to be careful not to make it biased and so on but mm-hmm. I think we shouldn't sell what what we can do manually under value you still need the computation yeah. part but the final interpretation is not going to come out out of an enrichment algorithm for you mm-hmm. yeah do you think we'll ever get there I think it will always be the case that better and better computational tools will give you more interesting views of the data, things you hadn't expected, but it's always more like the first page of Google for you. So you still got to pick the right one and go through it and interpret Mm -hmm. it and figure out only, you know, the field, the computer doesn't know the context of the field and the other studies and what your question is. So I think the methods will get better in condensing those complex data sets into candidates of results. Mm -hmm. But the final one, I think, thankfully, 
will mean uh, <laughs> lucky for us. Lucky, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I fully agree. <laughs> so then we get to the more gener generic questions about metabolomics and about a data interpretation project. First, do you see, especially for the beginners with metabolomics or people who are diving into their first interpretation projects, do you see any pitfalls in the preparation of the data or in the actual, in running the analysis that you know now you can easily avoid? I think there's, there's a couple of aspects to this. First of all, and it sounds like a dry standard statement, but the pre-processing really matters. I would also encourage people, students, also new research in the field to think about pre-processing, not just as this chore that you have to do, this must do step that I hate mm -hmm. and I want to get past as soon as possible, but it's actually really interesting. There's a lot of statistics, there's a lot of computational methods involved mm -hmm. on the side of pre-processing the data. I know that's not what we want to do. We want our results for a question mm -hmm. and not work with massaging the data until <laughs> but it's absolutely necessary. You can't skip it. Um, Do you also see it as a way of getting to know the data? This was one of the advantages of doing this manual work is that even though I might've shown like 5% of the data at the end in the paper, you, you get a knowledge of the data that is really deep. And that also points you in the right direction, I think, sometimes. Very good point. For example, you might exclude an outlier, but if you've really spent some mm -hmm. time, you know that sample or the mouse, or maybe <laughs> what's what's going on there. What happened? You really know it at, at that time. And that time needs to be spent. And I think I, I only know two ways. Either we spend the time and then go forward, or we go forward too fast and then go back and spend the time. But eventually you will point. have to work mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And sort of the, the, the challenges and pitfalls among now the statistical analysis, I think what is tough in the field, and I think there's no way around it, is that it's not even metabolomic specific. You basically have to be a somewhat trained statistician to run the data with all the problems that come. Can mm -hmm. I use a method that assumes normality on normal data? Is that just some kind of math statement that doesn't matter in my actual application case? Or do I really need to take care of this? Alternatively, you can collaborate with statisticians. Yes, and I think you must. I think <laughs> yes. whenever you are running anything, even if you're running it on online toolboxes, unless they really take care of everything, you must have someone on board who has the basic understanding yeah. of the statistics or yeah. is willing to acquire it, go through the tutorials, go through all these things that we might not want mm -hmm. to go through, plots of the distribution of the data. Again, what I really want is go forward with my project, right? But mm -hmm. you have to because, and it can be something small as did I logarithmize my data? Yes or no? Mm -hmm. Huge difference in anything that of happens course, afterward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, did I scale my data before no. doing a PCA plot? And again, a beautiful example of like, do I log everything or not? Then you do your whole analysis, your whole interpretation. And then towards the end, you learn that, oh, you should have done this. You have to do yeah. everything new. This yeah, is so, quite dramatic. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you ask for pitfalls to avoid. So I think yeah. it's not even possible to, to name them one by one, because mm -hmm. unfortunately, you have to know how to statistically analyze quantitative data, which could also mm -hmm. be weather data or stock data. Those could be similar questions, mm -hmm. but you have to have Maybe not a degree in it, but you have to have someone on board that has a understanding of those concepts, mm -hmm. or you must train someone to get to that point yeah. on using online resources and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when it comes to the interpretation of that, what would you say is the most time-consuming step? 
I prepared for this and I read your questions and <laughs> that one I thought about for a while. Mm-hmm. That's such a good question. Mm-hmm. And I came up with an answer that I think has, is very practical and happens to a lot of people is that what we do a lot of times in data analysis, in my opinion, is we use the tools we have, try them first, ask questions later. And then later we realize it doesn't actually really fit our biological question. So we did a correlation analysis between metabolites and transcripts in our new multi-omics data set because that seems logical. That's what we do. And then when we look at the results, we realize, was that even, what is that even the question that we asked? And that becomes an iterative process. We go back yeah. and adapt our methods. So while the execution of a scientific project, of course, should be, we generate the hypothesis and we make a hypothesis. We pick the statistical method to answer it. And then we answer it. And then we write the paper mm-hmm. in reality. And everyone knows that it's a very yes. iterative process. Yeah. And that is driven by interpretation, right? So mm-hmm. you realize that it's not just that you don't get the result you want, mm-hmm. but you don't even know what to do with the result of the statistical yeah. method. Yeah. So you go back and adapt it and iterate, mm-hmm. and go on. And every time a postdoc or PhD student has to write 200 lines of code and debug it to get that new result done. And that, I think, is the most time consuming step in all mm-hmm. of it, combined with the more fun part that we discussed earlier, the manual interpretation. As we said, the pathway method doesn't get you to the last figure in the paper. So you mm-hmm. must put in your own interpretation mm-hmm. that is time consuming, but I think very fruitful. The iterative yeah. part, we switch between methods and hypothesis constantly, I think is not very productive and, mm-hmm. and taken care of. Yeah. Do you still strive to one day begin with your question, run in a straight line and get to the end? You know that this will never happen. Right. So I have to acknowledge <laughs> that while that's what we want, and it's always easy to think about it in hindsight, mm-hmm. uh, in reality, that never occurs. But also in our lab and in our discussions, we're trying to move more toward asking a question for which we pick the method than using the method that we know so well, use it first and then ask mm-hmm. questions later. Yeah, because this really makes sense because sometimes also you have the tools that you have and they might be very good to answer certain questions. So why not just go for that first? Yes. So we are changing our ways a little bit. I always ask in my lab, who cares? Not even in an offensive way, but in, in who actually cares, right? So who's really interested in the result that you produce? Mm-hmm. If you don't have an answer to that, you should immediately drop everything and rethink first. Before That's a you good way to go. Yeah, That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So your work in developing tools requires a lot of creativity. Do you also see a need for creativity in the interpretation part? I think yes. And I'm now interpreting the question also in terms of statistical and computational tools that aid in interpretation. And I Mm -hmm. think all of us who work in computational research can confirm that the most interesting new methods, the new toolbox that you publish later, all originates in some question, in some creativity. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with this data. Maybe we can try this. And Mm -hmm. suddenly... For example, we had this on the networks with the modentified toolbox. It started as a, couldn't you try this thing for the PhD student? Mm-hmm. And she thought about it and came up with a creative idea of how to make these modules and networks. And then it ended up being a toolbox. One, many maybe, but it's a, it's a new data interpretation toolbox that came from a creative brainstorming of how to go forward. So I think I would say to your question, is there room for creativity and for in data interpretation? 
the answer, I think, must be yes, because mm-hmm. that is literally what we do. I think otherwise we end up with the old tools, first of all, because then you don't create anything new, that give you, as you said before, like the beginning of the answer, but you still have to make the work of connecting it together. So I think we need creativity for the tools, how to apply them and then how to understand what they're saying to us and why that makes sense yeah exactly especially in exploratory studies yeah where you don't have an outcome that is clear if you know Mm -hmm. what the outcome is there's no creativity you just need Mm -hmm. to pick the right statistical test in Mm -hmm. a cancer study not that they're easy to do but Mm -hmm. the outcome doesn't need any creativity Mm -hmm. for a new omics data set and you give it to a phd student and say here figure it out uh Mm -hmm. you definitely need creativity yeah Uh, then to finish, I have two more straightforward questions. Which one is your favorite metabolite and why? Yeah, I had to laugh when I saw that question. <laughs> <laughs> if you no, have a favorite I wanna, metabolite. I don't want to pick favorites. No, <laughs> <laughs> I love um, all my metabolites equally. <laughs> yes, yes. I, a, a colleague many years ago also said after working with, and we only have a couple hundred, so after working with your results <laughs> that you need to publish for a while, you, you know each and every one of them personally. <laughs> um, I think for me, one of the most fascinating ones is true hydroxyglutarate. Mm-hmm. It's a metabolite that is relevant in cancer. And why I find it fascinating is that it it's a naturally occurring compound, but with a gain of function mutation that happens in the TCA cycle in many different mm-hmm. cancers, it suddenly makes the TCA cycle sort of spin out of control and produce masses of this metabolite. It's mm-hmm. really interesting that you can change the enzyme to produce something very similar, but a little different. Mm-hmm. And the 2-HG, 2-hydroxyglutarate, is being debated as one of the first oncometabolites. So the ones where it's not just a side product of the pathogenesis of cancer that it occurs, but it contributes to it. The presence of it has epigenetic effects and mm-hmm. contributes to cancer and the pathway spirals out of control so badly that you can actually see the metabolite in blood, even in the bloodstream, elevated a hundred. Mm-hmm. I always thought that story was fascinating and I worked yeah. on it. So that's mm-hmm. my favorite. Thank you. <laughs> this concludes our conversation about metabolomics. Thank you, Jan. And I look forward to all the wonderful new tools that you will develop for us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to your exciting podcast. Thank you for joining us in this discussion. I hope that this episode gave you new insights and ideas on how to plan, conduct, and communicate your own metabolomics projects. If you'd like to continue this journey with us, make sure to register for the Metabolomist email list on the podcast webpage. For regular news on metabolomics and data interpretation, you can connect with me, Alice Limonciel, on LinkedIn, where I post on metabolites, analysis strategies, data processing tools, and more. And make sure to check out our other podcast episodes on the Metabolomist website.